The more I see of Nathan Fife, the more I am reminded of the former Carlton powerhouse, Anthony Kudafides. It's coming up 10 years since Kuda slipped quietly into retirement after his spectacular journey in football. We miss him. Thankfully, we have Fife. Hi, Anthony. Is the comparison appropriate? Oh, look, I must say sometimes I do look at him and think he does some of the things that I used to do. Probably does it a little bit better than myself, but just a wonderful player to be able to play, you know, not just solely midfield, but can run in defence and take a mark and throw him up forward and take a mark and kick a goal. He's a wonderful player. He's one centimetre shorter than you and probably six or seven kilos. Yeah, less. He, he looks bigger, actually, Mike. When I watch him play, he looks like he's really solid. And I met him maybe three years ago and had a photo with him. He actually looked taller than me, so... The boys seem to be getting taller and taller through the midfield now. Do you, do you, the modern game, do you watch it? Not a lot, Mike. Sometimes I try to watch it and uh, if it's a good game, I'll watch it. I mean, the grand final was fantastic last year, but I don't have a, a real keen interest in the game as much as obviously what I did before, but I still would love the game. Do you? Is yeah. that true? Do you yeah. mean that? In my heart of hearts. I mean, th th this game was something that I dreamt of as, as a young kid and was able to play at the elite level and represent what I believe was the greatest football club back then so I'll never ever forget the, the time that I had as a footballer and sometimes of course I do miss that game it's that having the, the teammates out in the field with you and going to battle and winning the game and the supporters coming after you uh, you know so asking for autographs I'll never ever forget that we're going to get to that yeah um, we're interested in what's happened since you finished you're a massive name in football in this city and, and in this country how have you coped with life as a private citizen I thought I was ready, I guess, you know, everyone, I don't know if everyone does, but, you know, at the age of 34 was when I retired and, you know, did enough before that to sort of think that I was ready for retirement after football and maybe I think it was a lot harder than what I thought. So I often think of other players in the way that they finish up also. I mean, by the end of my career, I was on great money for the, for the second half and, uh, you know, I had all this fame and had sponsorships with Adidas and companies alike and, you know, did a lot of promotions out there. So I was one of those players that probably was given that little bit more than a lot of other players. So I often think of how a lot of players finish up and I think mentally it is very tough and there's no doubt I was lost there for a little while. I think I was juggling a lot of things to try all this and try all that to, to find something that I loved with a passion again and that was probably the most difficult part. And some players are fortunate that they end up back at their footy club and you know, I, you know, I, I was never that lucky. I'm in the footy club never asked me back. I tried to get back in there and there's no disrespect to the club that was, you know, they didn't want me there for whatever reason. So I probably felt, you know, a big, uh, you know, there was something there that sort of said, wow, you know, this footy club that I loved and admired and spent the years of when I was 14 all the way to 34 in their junior development teams and squads, I felt a, li a little bit disheartened, I guess, that they didn't want me to go back. But that's part of life and it probably gave me a little bit more drive, Mike, to try to find something to go out and achieve. What do you mean they, they didn't want you to go back? Did someone specifically say to you, we don't want you back in the footy club? Oh, no, 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 it wasn't that, but I did ask. and you know, I, Ask what? I asked whether they'd want me back there. In I, what capacity? I just as part-time role, I wanted to work with any player that, you know, they felt like maybe was on the fringe and maybe through my experience of playing in defence and forward and midfield and in the ruck and all that, that maybe I could, you know, have something there to be able to help them, maybe guide them along the way to maybe becoming a bona fide senior footballer. But uh, there probably was just no role for me, and uh, uh, I, I offered to do it for nothing to it one really? stage. Yeah, and spoke, you know, I spoke to uh, the coach back then as well, and you know all that. But the coach being uh, Brett Radden. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was nothing there for me. So it was probably a little bit hard to maybe accept. But I totally understand. I mean, if there's no position, there's no position. Who am I to go back in there anyway and ask? So. But you'd been 20 years in the bubble, hadn't you? You, you started yeah. at Carlton at 14. 
finished yeah. at 34. And you do live in a bubble, don't you? Particularly blokes like you, who are as big as you were. Yeah, we did. You know, the under-15s was really just a, a development squad. It was once a week we trained. But the under-19s became a little bit more full-time for myself. I played 38 games in the under-19s. And I was born and bred basically from that club because at the age of 14, I was still a young kid and walked out, you know, a mature adult with, you know, a couple of kids. Then I've got three kids now. So I spent a lot of time. And we do live in a, a cocoon. You know, it's just... The greatest period of my life was throughout the 90s when I got to spend time with some incredible elite athletes and professional footballers and leadership at that football club. When I walked through those doors as a young kid, I just was surrounded by incredible leadership and led by Stephen Kernahan mm -hmm. and uh, you know all his, um, you know all his lieutenants you know around him as well. So we did live in that sort of way, Mike. And you never envisaged yourself as retiring and finishing because my entire life was just sport, yeah. sport, footy, footy, footy. Mark Robinson did an interview with you in the Herald Sun in 2014 in which he touched on depression. Now, it seems there's still this resistance for people to admit that they might be suffering depression. You said <clears throat> maybe. Do you, yeah. think, do you think you were depressed at the time? I, I think I definitely wasn't on, didn't need medication, Mike. I think it was more that I was in a lower period of my life and really trying to find my way. But it was nothing different from what I hadn't experienced throughout my football career. I mean, I had low, lows throughout that too. But you also said in Robbo's article, which is three years ago, that you couldn't get out of bed some days. Yeah, I, it was, I had health issues then, Mike. It was 2010 for the first time. But physically or mentally? No, physically. Physically, mm. I struggled. I'd sleep 11 hours a night. And I think a lot of people go through that. It's not like it's anything unusual. But, you know, I'd get home from work, sleep on the couch, and I'd stop training at that period. So I had a few health issues. I was really concerned, you know, for the first time. And, you know, I, I, it was a difficult period. It really, it really was. Here's one of your quotes. I was searching for something <clears throat> to inspire me again. You're in your mid-30s. Mm. You just wonder what you're going to do. And then you said maybe it was depression. Yeah, I said that. I think Robbo in that article was saying, by the sounds of everything you're saying, it sounds like you're depressed. And I mm. said, maybe my ego, maybe it's just my belief. I don't think it ever was depression. I know there's a lot of people that suffer it really seriously out there. I'm not one to say that I was depressed. I never went on medication. However, it's no different to anyone being in a working environment, Mike, for 20 years and then the work yeah. saying goodbye. But I always reflected back to my, my father in the period that when I lost my father in 1998, it was the most difficult period of my entire life. And I believe now in life, if I can push through that, which I did, and if we talk about depression, I was probably depressed back then, but probably didn't want to face it also. But, um, you know, I, I believe now I can get through anything, you know, being able to push through the death of my father, which probably took me 12 months, I think, to try to get over. It wasn't a day that went past that I didn't think of him. Your father died of cancer, your father Jim. How long was that struggle for him and how long were you, was your football affected? Oh, to be selfish, not long enough. Uh, it was at the end of 1997 in December he got diagnosed and by March of 1998 he passed away and it was a really difficult period. Mike, I struggled to sleep in all honesty and uh, I didn't really want to be at training and I think Parco knew, although I was there at training, I wasn't mentally there. I was more just thinking about my father. And I wanted to spend every second that I could with him. He was a guy that I idolised, a guy that was a comedian in, in mm. our family. You know, he came up through a pretty difficult upbringing too. You know, had to flee. He was born in Egypt and had to flee Egypt at the age of 22 and leave his family behind and not see his father again. So, you know, I always remembered that. And uh, he was a character at the Layla Football Club where I played with also. And around our area of Layla Thomas, and go to Layla Plaza and ask people, do not kuta, you not kuta? And they'd go, yeah, he goes, that's my son. You know, people would tell me these things. So he was a character, and to lose him was very difficult for me. I used to drive mum and dad 
to the games. Mike, being a good European boy, I was embarrassed about it, but it was something, <laughs> yeah, it was just something that my mum was like, no, you must, you must drive us. So I just did it because, you know, it's out of the respect for mum and dad. And, you know, as the other teammates are turning up with girlfriends and teammates, there I was with mum and dad. So the year nice, that he nice, wasn't nice there. Touch. Yeah, the year that he wasn't there in 1998, being in the car was. My focus was just thinking, I wish he was there. So how old were you in 98 and how old was he when he died? I was uh, 20, I think I just turned 25. He was 58. He just turned 58, mm. basically. So he was still pretty young, you know. Mm. What sort of impact on your football? When you were going to the football in those days, and you were so important to Carlton, <clears throat> when you were walking into the ground, were you focused on, could you focus on the game? Uh, no, I couldn't. It was a really difficult period, as I said. I mean, in the car, thinking that my father was there one year and the next year he's gone. It was really hard for me and hard for me to believe and all these questions went through my mind and I lost my way. I was drinking a lot back then, Mike, and I think my focus was really on that. And it wasn't until probably your article in the back page of there. It's only right, remember this, back in 1998. I just finished playing against Fremantle and the heading was drop Cooter. Really? Yeah. I didn't like it then, Mike, but <laughs> I got to understand Sorry, that mate. it was the true... But it was, a, it was a, an honest article by you and something for me to make me realise that I have to change my way. And if it wasn't for... My family, my good mate Sash and, uh, you know, Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell and David Parkin in that period who made it a lot easier for me. And the club were fantastic to me, Mike. They could have easily dropped me and never did. You mentioned, Parko, your early relationship with David wasn't healthy, was it? <laughs> no, no. And I, I didn't get along with Dave. He's one of the guys that I absolutely love now and he knows that too. I spoke to him not long ago. I think last week I called him up. So I, I was probably one of those guys, Mike, that didn't go out of my way. Sorry, mate. To, What's he saying yeah. to you there? He's probably saying get a kick, Kuda. <laughs> and there's Fraser Brown, what an absolute legend and a, a great guy. But that was the, uh, I think, the qualifying final against Brisbane Bears back then before they were Lions in 1995 when it was like it was very close to three-quarter time and Chris Scott was tagging me and I hadn't really had a kick and he said, Kuda, you're going to full forward around that sort of... I think it was around about three-quarter time. How do you know what game that is? I remember that photo. So I remember that Brisbane Lions and that photo, for whatever reason, being there with Brownie. I don't know how, because I haven't got a great memory, Mike, <laughs> but that, that photo there I do recall. Do, do you recall this, Anthony? Do you recall oh. the runner coming out <laughs> one day and saying to you, Kuda, Parker wants to know if you feel like <laughs> playing today? <laughs> Yeah, I do. It wasn't the first time. Mentally, uh, David, you know, uh, it made it hard for me. It was, it was one game, I think even Andrew McKay was coming off that day from a blood rule, and I literally just ran on, and the runner came up to me and said, Kuda Parker wants to know if you want to play today. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what does he want me to do? So, you know, I thought I was being treated unfairly early on, but in hindsight now, Mike, when I look at it, I was probably a very talented kid that was maybe a bit lazy, and Parko probably didn't like that. And I can understand that working in my field now with my people, when I look at people with talent and they don't work hard enough, I tend to ignore them too. So I'm mm. no different to the way that Parko was. So in hindsight now, I, it's not about blaming David. It's really a lot of it was a reflection on myself and my immaturity, I think. In, and that's probably the reason why you know, David just uh, ignored me and maybe made me sacrifice that little bit more. I mean, I played 50 reserve games, yeah. Mike, but it, it probably then made me a better player because of that period. And what I learned through that period, I apply now in my, in my business. So it took me three and a half years to consolidate myself as a senior bona fide player being picked every week. And I tend to think that way in my business now in what I do. So it was like really good life lessons that I learned instead of giving, you know, being given things on a platter. The popular view was that you were an athlete playing football and therefore you are going to be slow to develop. But that's not in, tr in fact true, is it? Not true at all, uh, Mike. I, I, I played football at the age of eight. I fell in love with that over ball with my older brother mm. Paul. 
And uh, we went down to a local footy club. Mum and Dad didn't want us to play. And we said, we are going to play. We had a great Australian family that used to take us to the game. So ever since I was young, I started playing football. That was football in the winter and athletics in the summer. And I did that all the way through until I committed at the age of 17, signing my first contract for the Carlton Football Club. But I played two years in the development squatting at Carlton under-15s. I made the Victorian team under-15s. I went on to play 38 games in under-19s and made the Victorian Metropolitan team with Dennis Pagan as coach and made the All-Australian that year too. So I had a really good you know, junior football career also. So yeah, the, the thought was I was more of an athlete, maybe because I was so talented as an athlete mm. and maybe I just played the game naturally in the way that I knew and I was not taught by mum and dad because they had no idea how to play the game. That maybe I did come in a lot more maybe underdeveloped with the talent that I had than maybe some other players. I must say I'm intrigued by the fact that you played in total 88 games at under-19 and reserves level. You won a reserves best and fairest, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah, in 1992. Yeah. They played me a full-back. <laughs> so were you frustrated then with, given the, the talent that we saw flourish a few years later, were you frustrated you were so long getting your opportunity? I was frustrated without mum and dad and my brother's support, both Paul and Christian. I don't know how I would have made it. I had my best mate Sash too who supported me and it was those guys that continually gave me the belief to say that you're better than them and I, I think I, was really, I wasn't a confident person. I probably had doubts in myself and uh, everything that I tried to do, I just always had um, setbacks for whatever reason. So it took me a long time to become... You know, that player that was picked every week. But when I got that opportunity, I was ready for it, Mike, and I, and I grabbed it. Paco says, as Paco does, he gave up on you after four years <laughs> and virtually hand-passed you to Wayne Britton and Barry Mitchell. Is that true? Yeah, when Wayne Britton came to the club, I was just a wonderful man. And when Barry Mitchell retired too, he was always on the phone to me to tell me what I needed to do to improve my game. And those two there were probably the first two guys, apart from Rod Ashman, who was fantastic also. As a, as a seconds coach. Uh, yeah, 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 when I first started. So they were the two who grabbed me and said, Kuda, this is what you've got to do if you want to become an elite AFL player. And because they grabbed me and, you know, they, they embraced me, I embraced them. And I, everything that they said, I just went, OK, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And it was those guys that really took my game to another level. And, uh, you know, they sat with me and did extra work with me and, and really understood the way that I could play to maximise my potential. Did, did you not see the psychologist, Anthony yeah. Stewart? Yeah. yeah, I got dropped in 1994 for two games and they sent me off to Anthony Stewart. And Were you happy to do that? Happy to, to, yeah, I was, to sit down? Yeah, I was willing to do anything, Mike. I, I remember crying, you know, one stage there, you know, mum and dad saying, I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance or an opportunity to be able to play, you know, pro you know properly for, you know, as, a, as a senior player. So as soon as they said go and see him, I, I didn't hesitate. And Anthony Stewart was fantastic. The words, I can, I will, you just watch me, which I apply nowadays also, were the words that sort of really had a major impact in my life. See, when, when we watched you in the mid-90s, it, it looked like you believed you could just do anything. Yeah. And, and you obviously you did. Yeah, I don't know if I believed, but I just went out there embarrassed not to play well, Mike, so I just did everything that I could to play good. And I think I just when I played with just my, you know, just my football ability I, and just let myself go, I could play the game. And once I realised that, then I, you know, I just tend, you know, I got a little bit better and better. A little bit? Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> Anthony, we've talked about your relationship with David Parkin. What about your relationship with Dennis Pagan, the man who made you captain of the Blues? Well, our relationship was OK. Was it? Like, yeah. He was a pretty funny character. He was my coach at Till Cup back in 1990, I think it was. And so I admired him from afar. He had great success, enormous success at under-19s and reserves at Essendon won a premiership. I don't know how many premierships he won with under-19s, but then, of course, seniors he won two throughout that period in the 90s. But uh, it was just a period, I think, at the club that, you know, we were never going to go forward 
with uh, you know with his coaching style. It sort of never advanced and kept up with maybe the game and the way that it was evolving. But he gave his all. Like he was a hard worker, Dennis, and he would get but there early. Related, but you and he fell out, didn't you? Well, only at the end. I think because I because of my book, and I was a little bit I was honest about it without giving away too much that I was honest with my assessment on Dennis. And so, yeah, look, I'd see him now and I'd try to say hello, but obviously, you know, he doesn't want to talk to me, which is he, fair enough. Everyone so he doesn't talk to you? No, no, he doesn't. But I, I don't have a problem with that. I just, I wish him all the best and I hope that he's successful in everything that he does because you, I can't put past the amount of hard work and effort that, you know, Dennis did playing football and who am I to criticise him. But I know in the five years there, I'd never experienced football and the losses that we did, you know, with the game style that he had, it was a game style that was, in my opinion, outdated. And uh, it was the only way, really, I guess he knew how to coach. So as much as we tried to, you know, help cause, uh, at the end of the day, you know, he had his own belief in it. But did you, did you tell him that at the time? Oh, we tried to. I mean, Dennis was set in his way. And, uh, you know, th there wasn't much that, you know, he would, he would listen to a point, but then probably that, that was it. So it was, it was a difficult period, Mike. You can imagine the success that we came through in that period there when... Uh, you they were dark days, weren't they? They were, they were dark days. They were probably a period in my life in here that I'd rather forget when I think of football because if I was to go back in those five years again, I wouldn't want to do it. It was mm. too hard. And we you know, talk about mentally, you know, depression and all then, all that. If I was depressed, probably, you know, <laughs> apart from my father, that year, those five years there was difficult, Mike, because I was coming towards the end of my career. It wasn't about me playing senior footy. It was about the club going forward and playing finals again. And I wanted to so desperately to just play finals footy again and put bring, bring back Carlton into the position that they needed to be. So, last one on this. If you crossed paths in the street, would you speak to Dennis? <laughs> I would, but he wouldn't, if he that wouldn't. makes sense. So you, it's, uh, and that's happened? I have, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah we sometimes see him at my favourite gym, Doughty's gym in Brunswick mm. there with Tony, and uh, I've seen him in the past. He berated me <laughs> one time when I was there, <laughs> and I stood there and just took a barrage off him. Because he's good at that. He's good at that. Yeah. And, but I look, I still, you know, just let him go in life. I just, you know, I'm happy with life going this way, okay. and if he wants to be part, he can. If not, it's not okay. a problem. What was the high point, do you think? Was it the uh, Premiership? No, no doubt, Mike. It's the greatest day of my entire life. And, you know, if I'm going to be selfish, you know, I've had, you know, I've been married and I've got three the, the best kids. And, uh, but, you know, as a kid, my dream was to be an Olympian or play football. And I was able to play, you know, live my dream. But that, that day there, uh, that last day in September on the MCG was the day that I'll never, ever forget, Mike. It was the greatest day of my life. And there it is there. Still some to great this memories day. memories there, yeah. And some incredible players. Glenn Manton was a great, you know, friend of mine, Mill Hanna, that I respected so dearly, you know. And, uh, you know, Matty Hogg, and, you know, Matty Hogg's probably one of those guys that you always respect for getting everything out that he possibly could, and Dean Rice there too, just great guys. You talked about the Olympics, you mentioned the Olympics. In your own mind, <clears throat> did you believe that you had to make a choice between a possible Olympic career and, a, and an AFL career? Yeah, 100%, yeah. yeah. So how good were you in athletics? Uh, I was at, look, I was Australian champ high jumper at, uh, for a couple of years there, and then Tim Forsyth came along, he was, you know, one of the elite high jumpers in he was the world. your He was a contemporary of yours, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, once he came along, he was just so, you know, I jumped two metres eight, he jumped 216, but he what went on... What did you on, do? 208? Yeah, 208. Yeah, yeah. When I was 16, and he jumped 216, but he went on to jump, his best was 236. Mm. But I won the uh, Australian uh, 110 metre hurdles title before I signed the contract with an Australian record. So it was either probably hurdles or maybe decathlon, Mike, because yeah. I was quite a, quite good at uh, quite a few events that potentially I could have gone on to become an Olympian. But I know I made the right decision. 
You I do? Have no reg- yeah, yeah, 100%. What, what, what was the view at home? I suspect that they might have wanted you to be an athlete rather than nah, a footballer. By no? the end, my mum and dad fell in love with the game of football. And, they? and they fell in love, Mike. They were more probably fanatical than what I was. And they didn't miss not one single game. From that second... Second year onwards, as I played as a junior from nine years of age, they came to every game and took me to every game and just had the belief in me. Even with athletics, they'd always say, even if I didn't play well in the game of footy, they'd say, no, no, very good, very good, you play good today. <laughs> they were always really encouraging for me. I'm yeah. probably not that way myself. I'm a little bit more critical with my kids because I understand the game a little bit more. But they were wonderful uh, yeah, parents, as in they just built me up to probably... Luckily, I had them because I didn't really have that belief that I could ever make it. Grand final day, you play on a wing. Mm. You play on a very good player in Lee Colbert, yeah. whose specific task was to contain you. You had 19 to half time and 31 or two for the game. Mm. Did you think you were going to win the norm? <laughs> I didn't really think too much about it, Mike. I think I bet you did. Nah, when the siren went. Well, you know what? My third quarter probably wasn't great. And it was probably a letdown for me. But Diesel, I mean, Diesel had 31 and kicked five. Kick five yeah, yeah, I mean, how do you not win the Norm Smith medal there? But if we want to go in the first half when the game was really on the line, maybe you could have said that, you know, by halftime, maybe I was leading the Norm Smith medal. It was a little bit like a lot of my fortunes throughout my career. I was just missing out. <laughs> what about the preliminary final win over the Bombers? It's yeah. a famous day in Carlton's history, isn't it? Yeah, I'll never... Forget John Elliott, he was the greatest president by far at that footy club. And uh, I remember him coming into the change rooms then, Mike, and, and before the game saying, I've got a funny feeling about today, Kuda, you know? And it just, I thought about the Carlton culture and the history of the club and always producing their best come finals time. And I, I thought, hang on, we're playing against the Unbeatables here. And mm. I thought, what if Jack knows something that I don't know about <laughs> here? He always tended to lift me a little, Jack, when he used to come up and just say, you know, it's your day today, Kuda, in his words and the way that mm. he did it. I just loved and respected Jack enormously, and he loved and embraced the players too, and the club. He did everything for the sake of the club. So we just got that edge on Essendon. We didn't deserve to win. I mean, Essendon were a far superior team than us. But because we just got off to that better start in the first half, it, it gave us enough lead to be able to, you know, I guess Essendon went hard in the third quarter, didn't they? And mm. just played the way that they should have played. But it gave us enough leeway to be able to fight back in the last quarter. There's a Blake in number 43 in the Navy Blue who was pretty good in the last quarter that day. Yeah, I was... Uh, I was all right, Mike. It was one of those good days. But yeah. playing in defence all day, I was hoping that Parker or Britton would say, you're in the midfield in the last quarter. But I was never one to approach him and say, put me in the midfield. I wasn't that sort of player. Wherever the team needed me, I'd play full forward, full back, whatever. And it was about two or three minutes into the last quarter that I got the tap from the runner and he said, you're in the midfield. So mm. I just I just went crazy. You did. You, but you, you pride yourself on playing well in big games, don't you? I really did, Mike. Even... As a young kid, when it came to the big games, I always stood up and athletics for the big championships, I'd always produce my best. So I guess in here, I was always at the end of those finals things, probably just got that little bit more out of myself and was always, you know, always prided myself, as you said, playing well when it came to the big pressure games. You and Ange Christo were seen to go steady through your... Uh, your <laughs> what do you mean by steady? <laughs> the rumours. Well, there were rumours. There yeah. were rumours about you, weren't there? Yeah, there was, yeah. I had a reporter knock on my door to ask me if I want to come out with the truth with the, the rumours, but... About your sexuality? Yeah. yeah. What did you say to that? Well, just we had a laugh. My mum and dad invited him inside and we had a coffee with her, so that was the sort of extent of it. Because you weren't an angry boy, as I yeah. remember. You were always genial and amiable. Yeah, I just laugh it away. In particular, yeah. Ange. Like, he's definitely not my type, no. you know. But <laughs> Ange and I just had a wonderful relationship. We kicked off in the under-19s. I was 16, he was 17. Greek background, too. And uh, we became best mates on, on the footy field. 
and still to this day we're incredibly you know close as in friends i don't see him a lot but you know for what we've been through and everything we we have an attachment there in that sort of way nothing more but a phenomenal player. You talk about taking up football late, that was Ange. He took it up mm. when he was 15 or 16 at one game and Carlton noticed him and brought him in and he was playing senior footy before me, Mike. So he was very talented. Everyone at Carlton loved you and that's a true statement I know from talking to so many people. But they did think that you squeezed them for money. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, I think everyone squeezes for money, don't they? I'm... If you look back in my career, Mike, I started on seven thousand eight hundred dollars in ninety one, yeah. ninety two, and ninety three. But no one looks at that period. Yeah. When I had to ask mum and dad, who didn't really have much money, can I borrow some money because it really didn't even pay for your travels and you know your lifestyle that you lived back then. So the income came later on, and there's no doubt I, I got looked after. Um, Do you are you prepared to tell me what your best contract was? Well, it was the, the five year deal that got extended out to six years when yeah. when Colo came. So for how that, much? Uh, it was. It was around about that five million over the six years, I think. Oh, I can't, don't quote me on that, Mike, because I'd have to go back. But it was, look, <laughs> it was a substantial amount, but there was a lot of deferred payment included into that contract too, which, if we went back, it got a little bit complicated with my manager. And but all the, you know, the club board knew exactly what was going on. So the deferred payment from two to three years prior sort of ended up into this five-year deal, which later on, you know, I had to take a pay cut, which I'm happy with, Mike. Okay. So, without labouring the point, Anthony. The six-year deal was worth <coughs> roughly five mil, right? And subsequently, you took a reduction, mm. a significant reduction. Uh, it was enough to, yeah. To hurt. Well, no, it wasn't hurt. It was enough to. Colo got me at the start and got me at the end. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot fine, of people in that category. Who, who cares? Like you know, I lived at home until I, you know, 27. It wasn't. The money thing wasn't for me. The money thing came later. Did the money allow you to build something for your post-football career? Yeah, I was lucky. I had you know enough that I earned in that second half of that period to have enough behind me to move forward 100%. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have anything, it would have been an even harder period for me, Mike. When you were a bit lost, Anthony, what got you back on track? Who or what got you moving again? I fell in love with a company called Herbalife, the nutrition and that health and fitness and me being through everything that I have been through to go out there with a passion again and I've got some goals and everything like footy now again I've got, to, got a vision I want to go out there and help as many people as I possibly can who are suffering I have a lot of knowledge throughout my career Mike uh, through fitness and nutrition and everything that you know mentally as well so we, we work on the mindset part as well and when I found that nutrition made such an, had such an impact on me I just went out there and started working and now I live a lifestyle from home, you know, I travel the world and uh, I get to spend more time with my kids, which is really important for me. But I've helped hundreds of people. So have you got a franchise, have you? It's not a franchise. Well, I mean, our website's called Active24 and people can follow me on social media. I, you know, I train and do all that and I go to development weekends and, you know, it's a mindset stuff, but I'm helping people with their health and wealth. I never would have thought after football that I could find something that I could love with a passion again as, a, as something that I've found now. And it's made me content with life. So there's a, there's a large level of scepticism about the health industry, isn't there? You'd be aware of that. Yeah, 100%. You've totally, uh, got total belief in it. 100% I do, yes. Have you got any regrets in your life? I don't know if I've got regrets, Mike. I mean, obviously I had injuries throughout the, the peak of my career that, you know, afterwards people always said you were never the same and, you know, obviously on, you know, on paper I wasn't, you know, and I definitely couldn't do some of the things I, I did previously. So... But then if someone said to me, you're going to play 278 games mm. and win a couple of best and fairest and all Australians, and, you know, I, I, would have t I would have said thank you. No, of you course you I mean? would. But then you got there and sort of sometimes you look back and sort of say, 
that you weren't fairly treated in some area, but you don't have that. There's nothing like that. No, no. Hey, Ant, it's been great to catch up with you. Well, I loved you as a player, despite that story I wrote about you all those <laughs> That's years fine, ago. Mate. That's uh, no problem. And I just do genuinely see you in, in Fife, and, and I hope that continues for a long time. It's great to see you so healthy and well. Thanks very much, mate. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This has been a Fox Footy production. Part of the Fox Sports Network.